0: been studying this gospel together, we come to a very simple, straightforward story that's familiar to a lot of people. It doesn't seem to have a lot of complicated or abstract things in it, but sometimes the simple things have very profound truths. I ask you to listen to God's Word as I read Luke 7, beginning at verse 1. When Jesus had finished saying all this in the hearing of the people, He entered Capernaum, I say to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he was amazed at him. And turning to the crowd, following him, he said, I tell you, I have not found such great faith even in Israel. And then the men who had been sent returned to the house and found the servant well. This is God's holy word. I believe it was about 20 years ago that I saw a very unforgettable exhibition of faith displayed in film that was shown on a national nightly news broadcast. As I recall it now, it's been quite a while, a group of skydivers had planned a mass skydive, parachutists, and several airplanes, actually. There were a, a, several dozen of them, as I remember who were planning to all jump at the same time, you know, and join hands in circles and do acrobatic tricks and whatever, different formations as they were headed for the ground. And one man was, of course, going to film this, and so he jumped somewhat after the others so he would be above them and able to have his shoulder-mounted camera trained on them as he went down, hopefully, to, to film uh, what was happening. Well, all went according to plan, at least up to a point. The cameraman jumped, but the film that he captured of that event became a journal, really, of horror that the news showed. Incredibly, the cameraman, of course, had his camera, but he didn't have a parachute. Somehow, he had left the plane... Overlooking the fact that his pack had not been put on and nobody else noticed it. And they had recovered the film from a smashed camera beside a crushed body on the earth and showed the film spinning wildly out of control as he went to his death. Well, I say to you that this man had tremendous faith. And I'm not kidding he had faith residing in a parachute that was not on his back. Now, what a terrible thing that was. It was misplaced faith that would do him no good at all. And as awful as his death was, and I certainly do not wish to belittle the man in in using him as an example, but it seems to me that when he might have reached for that non-existent ripcord, if he went that far before he realized he didn't have the chute, that he was not unlike some people who will die one day and stand before an eternal God for an accounting and they will reach for their humanitarian good deeds or their vague religious ideas or philosophy or their church membership or something that they have put faith in and they will find that they had trusted in a useless object that will not sustain them in that hour. There are skeptics, of course, who label all kinds of faith, every kind of faith, as useless. They would laugh at us and say, what you people believe is of no more value than that man without a parachute. You Christians just, uh, we're often told that we leap in the dark, supposedly. We trust in things we wish were true that we can't prove are true, and therefore, how can we say they're going to be reliable or that they're going to provide shelter or or safe landing, if you will, for us in eternity? Well, our text in Luke 7 is about faith, of course, faith that God himself commends as not only being effective but actually being great, great faith, excellent faith, because it humbly trusts in the spoken promises of God and the one most reliable person in whom faith has to trust, Jesus Christ, the most worthy object of great faith. You may have noticed in your bulletin, I, I, it wasn't there when we started this series on Luke many weeks ago, but about the third or fourth week I added a subtitle to the series calling Luke the Gospel of Astonishment. Because it has impressed me in a new way, again, how in this gospel, time after time, people are reacting to Christ with amazement. It will say something like, and the crowd was amazed, or or the people were full of wonder. Well, that we've seen many times already, but today there's something we've seen the first time in this gospel along that line. Luke 7, 9 tells us, here's a time when Jesus himself was amazed by something a man did. A man who showed faith, great faith, who was hardly a likely candidate to do that. And I'm asking today that we find three elements here composing this great faith that we also need to have and discover ourselves. First, we can say that great faith begins in a dire predicament. A central character, of course, is a centurion, an army officer in charge Of troops from Rome. Now, there's an interesting qualifier when we say troops from Rome. You, when you picture this in the time of the Bible and you say Roman soldiers, you probably think they all were what we would call Italians, people who grew up near Rome somewhere and came over on a ship and now they were in the far regions of the empire. Well, the fact of the matter was actually a little different. Many of the troops employed by Rome and actually accountable to Rome were mercenaries, and especially in the more remote parts of the empire, places where Romans themselves didn't really care to serve. We know that a lot of mercenary soldiers who served in Galilee or Judea were actually from Syria, and some of the commentators have speculated it could have been a good possibility that this centurion officer was a Syrian by birth, it would help at least to explain why he had grown up with a highly sympathetic viewpoint towards the, the worship of Jehovah by the Jews. He apparently knew the Old Testament Scriptures, respected them. He had given generously to the Jewish temple in Capernaum, which actually was, you could call, the home church of, of Jesus right at that time. He was what we call a God-fearer. Not himself a Jewish convert, but someone who respected their religion and stood at the edges of it uh, with admiration. Now, this centurion, we're told, had a servant who was sick and about to die. And what happens here tells us something else about the man. He was a man probably of somewhat uncommon sympathy and compassion for someone in his station, a wealthy, powerful man in that time could have servants with the snap of his fingers. If one died, if one proved unsuitable, a servant could be replaced like, you know, a broken toaster in your house. Not hard to get another one. And to be concerned about the life of a dying servant, to want to care for him and reach out to him and do the best for him was probably unusual for something for someone in this man's position. But he had heard of Jesus, of course, the The reputation of Christ as a healer was spreading, and so he thought, I'll ask my Jewish friends if possibly their rabbi would would pray for my friend. And he was thinking to himself, he doesn't have to come. He could just pray to his great God, Jehovah, for this servant. Many believe, as we look at this parable, the commentators certainly are pretty much agreed that we ought to take the plight of this servant and understand it to be our plight. We, too, are people with a dire predicament. We're going to die. Right now, we're actually sick unto death, you could say. Some of us closer to that than others. Every once in a while, maybe you stop and and add up. Well, how many many days, how many years of life might I expect to have? You do a quick calculation, and then you quickly put that out of your mind and, and go back to your work because you don't want to dwell on that, do you? And then comes, as I know has happened for some in our congregation, a very quick, sudden loss of someone close to you. And you say, wait a minute, that didn't seem to be according to the timetable. Do I have as long left as I thought I did? And am I ready when death comes? Am I going to be able to face God in my sin and my difficulties? Am I prepared for that? The need for great faith begins in a dire predicament that we all have. The Scripture says that we all are born, as it were, in the critical care unit of life. We, too, have a predicament that needs solving. But secondly, at the heart of this account in Luke 7, we see this. Great faith is a kind that measures outward worthiness as actual unworthiness. Great faith is a kind that measures outward worthiness as actual unworthiness. We're supposed to learn from these elders of the synagogue who were enlisted by the centurion to go and seek the favor of Jesus. And look how they did it. They said, whoa, this is an important man. For whatever reason, he had apparently donated a good bit of money to help their synagogue, either." To build it or maintain it or perhaps to pay the elders, pay those who were in charge there. They were grateful, of course. I've been involved, as many of you know, as a trustee of an educational institution. And I, I used to think once upon a time when you went to uh, college or seminary graduation and people got honorary doctorates that those were, were the great scholars, the people who had written the mighty books who were being honored for their scholarship. And that that is true. That's one of the reasons you can get an honorary doctorate. But I've learned from being on a trustee board when the president comes and nominates people for honorary doctorates, and maybe some of us might say, well, why are we giving one to that? I've never heard of that person. You're not really supposed to ask because it just so happens that maybe a million dollars has come into the coffers from that person and that's why they get a doctorate. Well, that's what was going on here. I don't know if it was a million dollars, but here was a man who they could go to Jesus and say, Jesus, this man really deserves you to help him. He has loved our nation. He has helped us. He deserves you to do this. I tell the new members class when we talk about giving and tithing and sacrificially offering yourself to the service of Christ. Some of them have heard me say it just a number of weeks ago, that I'm very glad that in my ministry I've never had and I never want to have access to those records that would tell me who gives what to the church. That would be one of the worst things that could happen to me. It really would be. I mean it sincerely. If in a congregation of this size I would just know the fact that there are wealthy people, who maybe give very little to the church. There are people on very modest incomes who probably go way beyond what anybody would ever expect, sacrificially giving. And you know what? If I knew those records, it would poison how I reacted to those people. I would want to stroke the folks who did a lot when they didn't have much. I would maybe give the icy stare to the person who should be doing something he's not. I'm glad I don't have the knowledge these elders had as they approached Jesus and said, he's, he's deserving. Look what he did for our building program. And you smell a rotten odor in the air here. It's the odor of religious barter system. A system that unfortunately many Americans understand pretty well because the idea is I do things for God in my life and maybe God will do something back for me. At some point, sooner or later, perhaps he'll owe me. But that's not the way God operates. How many times must his word hammer that message back to us? We know it. We ought to know it. But we still don't always. Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, a well-known text says, By God's grace are you saved through faith. And that faith is not even of yourself. It is the gift of God. Nothing you bring him is by works. No man is able to boast in his presence. No one is worthy. No one is deserving. These elders are absolutely wrong. Jesus Christ... Alone is deserving, and unless his worthiness stands in your place, you're in trouble. Now, staying with this text, uh, with this second point of the text about great faith measures outward worthiness as unworthiness. Look at the centurion. How did he view himself? Verses six and seven say he saw it completely differently. He didn't propose to the elders that they go and say what a great guy he was, or or what he deserved at all. When he found that Jesus was on the way, perhaps he was on his roof. Those those towns at the time, Capernaum's a small town, had flat roofs often. He might have been there and, and saw the the entourage coming with Jesus down his street. And, and he said, oh, wait a minute. This isn't what I even intended. I don't want the rabbi to have to come to my home. He was a Gentile. Some say what he didn't want was for Jesus to violate the restriction that said a Jew should not enter a Gentile's home or he might be defiled. But whether he was thinking of that or not, he was saying, look, this isn't, this isn't even what I, was, what I was asking for. I was just asking him to exercise his authority for the benefit of my servant. So please, run and tell him. He doesn't have to come into my house. Rabbi, tell him, just say a word. Just say a word. And I know my servant will be healed. Well, you know, humility of this kind is not fake. Humility of this kind would appear to be a genuine work of the Holy Spirit of God because it simply is not the natural way people regard themselves or talk about themselves. Most of us think a lot of ourselves. We think too much of ourselves, as a matter of fact. We, now we go through life, you know, there's a certain decorum. I heard an interesting discussion on National Public Radio where they were interviewing a, an expert on manners and etiquette, a subject that we have almost all forgotten completely about. And, and this lady was talking about different you know, niceties of how to behave and how to do things and so on. Well, we all observe the nicety that you're supposed to be modest about yourself. You're not supposed to to claim too much for yourself or tell the world I'm worthy, I'm deserving. And yet you can still sort of subtly act in a way that puts yourself in others' attention and while denying it, still expects the applause of everybody for you. Martin Luther always had graphic ways of saying things. He, he could really turn a phrase. And one of Luther's phrases, you know, the Pope wasn't exactly Luther's best friend. And, and Luther said, every man is born with a Pope in his belly. You see what he meant? Every man is born thinking he's on the throne and he's the predominant person that everybody should bow to. We usually want ourselves to be the center of attention. We usually are not modest and humble, and yet it's a work of the Holy Spirit of God that makes us that way. Do you remember Peter? Pretty proud, swaggering guy. He could have turned harshly on Jesus when we studied him a few weeks ago in in Luke 5, and he'd been fishing all night, was worn out, ready to go to bed, and Jesus said, wait a minute, take the boat out and cast the nets where I tell you. He could have stood up in his arrogance with the Pope in his belly and said, you don't know anything about fishing, I do. But instead he did what Jesus told him to do. And remember his boat almost sank with all the fish that were flapping in it. And then remember what he did? He fell down in the boat before Jesus and said, Lord, get away from me. Let there be a distance between us for I am a sinful man. And surely he was saying, you are an exalted one. You have the power of God. I don't belong anywhere near you. That's the kind of understanding of unworthiness that great faith needs to have. And it's an understanding that God gives us as we see more and more of the greatness of of who Christ is, he who was present at the creation of the world, he who in in Revelation 5, has heavenly beings singing his praise saying, worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power, riches, wisdom, strength, honor, glory, blessing. Worthy is the Lamb. All of creation is lifting him high there in Revelation 5. When you begin to see Christ that way, you begin to go down and down and the Pope somehow leaves your belly, you become smaller and smaller. I'm not preaching a pessimism. I'm not saying you should hate yourself. I'm preaching realism about yourself, that you would know how small and undeserving you are before the grace of God. Great faith is demonstrated best when I am brought down the lowest, and know that I'm not worthy of anything God could do for me. Well, in final consideration then of this centurion's words here in Luke 7 are verses 7 and 8. In this great sentence, Lord, just say the word and my servant will be healed. Here we see great faith resting on God's spoken word alone. Now, it was very natural for this military officer to think the way he did and because this was his life's blood, wasn't it? How did he act and work every day? He gave orders. He delegated tasks. He said, you go do this, and he fully expected it would be done. If the centurion said to a corporal, corporal, jump. The corporal didn't say, I don't feel like jumping. The corporal said, sir, how high, sir? And he jumped. Because that's what you do. Ultimately, if you disobey the centurion, you're actually disobeying the whole chain of authority that he represents all the way up to Caesar. And in the Roman army, they had a neat way of exercising discipline and getting a soldier to do what he was supposed to do. It was really very simple. If the soldier was insubordinate, he was dead. That worked. Now, we can't give this officer full credit for knowing Jesus as the full revealed Son of God. That wasn't even understood yet by the twelve disciples. But what he did know was that he was a man with authority over miracles of, that banished disease and, and even brought people alive. And so it seemed logical to the man's thinking, well, think how my authority works. I don't have to actually go to the corporal who's out there at the other side of the province. All I do have to do is send a messenger and say, do it, and it gets done. Jesus can say, Let this be done, and it should be done. What a wonderful simplicity there is in his logic, right? Well, When Jesus heard it, first of all, without evidently saying anything, he healed the man from afar. This is a unique miracle, by the way. There's no other miracle in the Gospels where Jesus never even saw the person that he healed. But then he turned to the crowd and he said, Did you hear what that man's message said to me? I haven't found such great faith as that even among the Israelites who ought to show it. Well, my application of this is very simple. The faith of this centurion was unique in that day, but it was not intended that it should remain unique. In fact, his faith is exhibit A of the exact great faith that God expects from disciples today. Great faith it does the same thing, and we have a predicament. We're going to die in our sins. We're sick unto death. We need to humble ourselves. We can't go to God telling Him what we deserve or bartering with Him. And you know, there's, there, there's a great way, if you don't know how to come to God humbly, the Bible helps you with it, if, as with so many other things. There's a psalm you can use. You can use it time after time. You can use it whether you've never come to Christ as Savior before or, or you're a 50-year Christian. It's Psalm 51, an all-purpose psalm of David. Many of you would know Psalm 51. You'd know many of its lines. It starts out, Have mercy on me, O God. According to what? According to how great I am? According to what I deserve? no according to your unfailing love. For it says, I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. And then before that psalm ends, it comes to the line that says, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. O God, you will not despise. You see, great faith doesn't wave IOUs in God's face. Remember, God, what I did for you Remember how good I was over there. Remember how I helped those people. Remember how I gave my money. Don't waive your IOUs. Great faith comes humbly and takes God at his word and claims what he's promised. Well, you say, what does he promise?" Well, I could be here for hours telling you what he's promised, all kinds of things. He's promised, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. You know, I tell people my own personal testimony, and I I especially I repeat it because I want young people to hear it, because I think many young people are like me. They might at an early day in their lives give their heart to Christ. For me it was eight years old. Jesus, I want you to be my Savior. I was absolutely sincere. And then for nine or ten years, I was up and I was down and I was up and I was down. One day I'd say, I'm sure I'm a Christian. Oh, no, I couldn't be a Christian. Yes, I think I am. No, today I don't feel like it. Well, maybe I am after all. Oh, now I'm not. And I went through that until I was about 17. And I don't really know who said what or how it came over me, but it was just such a simple, simple thing. And this is a simple lesson today. Did God mean it when he said what he said? Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. Do I believe in the Lord Jesus Christ? Yes, I do. Did God mean that, that I must be saved? Yes, he must mean it. He's God. And at some point, I just finally said, I trust what God says, not how I feel. Not whether my roller coaster of feelings is up or down or in or out today. I take God at his word. Isn't that so much of what faith is? Believing God at His Word. If He says, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened down, and I will give you rest, do you believe He can do that? Promise after promise after promise. You see, God met our sin at the cross of His Son. And because of what He did there, He became the one whose Word could always be accepted. If He says, Forgiven, you're forgiven. If he says, you're adopted as my beloved child, you are. If he says, I make you clean from that filthy habit that you don't seem to be able to shake off, you're clean in his eyes. Your father can speak words from a distance that count because once he came close at the cross and met us and disposed of the sin of every believer there. Today, then, I believe the Lord Jesus Christ looks with pleasure on any person who comes in their natural predicament in a lowly spirit and says, Lord, just say the word. Please, forgive me, cleanse me, empower me. I trust you. I take your word that you'll do it. We think that Jesus Christ has all authority from his Father, extending over time and space, power to reverse whatever the dire need is that you bring to him. You aren't worthy of it. Don't plead that. But approach him along the lines of great faith, like this centurion, and he'll change your life. He'll transform you, he'll make you his own. That's his promise and he's good for it. Praise be to God. Father, we ask you that you help us to learn this simple thing, how powerful it is to see this Roman commander taking you at your word, at a distance. You say the word, Lord. May we come to you in such a spirit, with such trust, And may the Lord Jesus himself, who has the power to forgive us and cleanse us, get all the glory. Amen.